Welcome to season two, episode 23 of Grace or Grit. This is a podcast intended to address difficult, controversial, and debatable issues related to the Bible and the church. I'm your host, Dave Talley, and I serve as a pastor at Grace Baptist Church in Herlock, Maryland. Along with me today is my co-host, Patrick Reed. He's a missionary to the Gambia in Africa. Patrick, how are things going with you? Oh, things are going pretty well. How about you? And I'm just happy as can be. I was uh, sharing with Patrick just uh, before we started recording that uh, we missed our recording last week. And he was like, you know, hey, what happened? What's going on? And I, I just tell you the truth. There's so many good things going on uh, that I just ran out of time and opportunity to do it all. Uh, so not a problem filled week, but just a lot of uh, a lot of good things happening. One of the good things that uh, has been going on, we got a man in our church who believes that God has called him into evangelism. His name is Danny. Y'all can pray for him. And I've uh, been spending some time in conversation with Danny. Uh, but the reason that's relevant, not only for the timing of, uh, of me being able to squeeze everything in or not squeeze everything into the schedule, but it's important because he is binge listening to our grace or grit podcast so he's gone back to the beginning and has uh, been listening he said he's almost up to date and uh uh he's actually started re-listening to some so uh that's the first report of anybody you know catching up on the whole season that i've heard um so god's using the podcast that's exciting amen joining us today for a second time is pastor chris kitchens our regular listeners may remember Chris from a conversation on cremation. Uh, but in case any of you uh, don't yet know Chris, Chris is the pastor of Mount Olive Church in Coleman, Alabama. And uh, glad to have him back on the podcast. Pastor Kitchens, welcome back to Grace or Grit. How have things been going with you? Hey, thank you, guys. It's good to be back with you. Um, things have been going well. Um, in Coleman, Alabama, where I minister. Our church is uh, seemingly getting back to quote-unquote normal um, after the pandemic. Uh, we've, it's been a long time since we've had anybody with the virus in the congregation, so that's been encouraging, been able to do some visitation again, um, and we're even instituting some of our services that we canceled during 2020, such as Vacation Bible School and um, our regular uh, summer revival service that we have every August. Uh, choir practice is coming back. Uh, training unions coming back. So it's been encouraging times um, at Mount Olive Church and in our family as well. So it's good to be with you. Looking forward to the discussion today. Man, it's great to have you. Good to see you again. Yes, sir. And, uh, hope this will be a blessing to the listeners. All right. Well, we are happy to have you back, Chris. Um, my little brother, Stephen, recommended you specifically. I think I told you that before. Uh, specifically, he recommended to me that I contact you to have you address cremation and foot washing. So <laughs> here we are. I've, I've chosen this topic for today's episode, straight gates and washing feet. So I'm, I'm sure you're happy to know that you're considered the expert minister on the doctrines of burning bodies and holy pedicures. So does that sit well with you? <laughs> Can I get that on an honorary degree somewhere? Yeah, we'll put it on your tombstone. This guy knew a lot about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, seriously. Let, let's get down to the matter at hand. I assume 
that we as Christian ministers think we know what we're doing uh, when we read and interpret the scriptures. Um, I hope that doesn't come across as cocky. If, if I was in my mind thinking I have no idea what I'm doing, then hopefully I wouldn't stand up and preach. Um, you know, hopefully I would be humble enough to say somebody else has got to speak because I don't know what's going on here. Um, but sometimes our interpretations of the same scriptures do not agree with other people's interpretations. And even as I look back at the past iterations of myself, I realize I've changed my interpretations uh, of some passages and have even been pretty far off base. And case in point is the straight gate of Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, and also in Luke chapter 13. Matthew wrote, enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. And then Dr. Luke wrote in chapter 13, verse 24, strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. And I've always read that and preached that as the straight gate. But let me spell it for you. I have preached it S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T. Well, that word means in one direction without curve or bend. But that's not the word used by the translators in those passages. It's spelt S-T-R-A-I-T. And that word means narrow, cramped, or close. So we've all heard of the straight and narrow way, right? You guys agree with that, right? Yes. Okay. But where did that come from? And the answer is probably Matthew chapter 7, verse 14, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leads unto life, but it's S-T-R-A-I-T, not S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T, and few there be that find it. Uh, but straight refers to the gate, of course, not the path, and the gate apparently is a fat man squeeze, <laughs> not just a perfect square or whatever the meaning of the word straight would have if it applied to a gate. Now that I think about it, I'm like, I'm, like, I'm not even sure what a straight gate would be, you know, as opposed to a crooked gate. I don't know if you're talking about uh, straight as an arrow. So you might say, well, that doesn't matter. You got the, you got the ultimate point, right? The ultimate point is most people do not find their way to heaven. That seems to be the ultimate point of the passage. And that hasn't changed in my perspective, but I had a long discussion with a gentleman years ago who's still part of our church because he kept saying that following God was a difficult path with lots of twists and turns and blind corners. I mean, he was like saying this every Wednesday night and I got tired of hearing it and uh, because I disagreed with it and I kind of rebuked him. So I set him straight, pardon the pun. And uh, I told him in no uncertain terms that the way of God is always straight. And uh, in my defense, um, there are some other texts that could be used to back up my position, but Matthew 7 does not appear to be the proper passage to use for that, and that's certainly the one I used. It only tells us, I believe it tells us, that the gate is hard to find and hard to fit through. Uh, it doesn't tell us that once you get in, it's a straight shot to glory. I suppose the, the movement of the cherubim and the wheels in Ezekiel could point to the straightness of God's ways, S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T. 
um, those angels move directly. And I assume that that refers to the fact that God never needs to turn to the left or the right or to adjust his direction, which I think is a glorious truth. Uh, he knows everything. He can do anything. So nothing's in his way and he didn't have to change, you know, halfway through anything like we do. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think there's a, a point that can be made, you know, concerning the straightness of God's way. There's New Testament um, verses that could be used, particularly I'm thinking of Hebrews 12, verse 12 and 13, lift up the hands which hang down on the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, let it rather be healed. But that passage is telling us to do our part to make spiritual progress easy and safe and accessible for the people around us who we are leading and influencing, right? Um, that's, that's not necessarily talking about, hey, let's make sure we have a moral path, which is kind of the way the straight and narrow has been presented every time I've presented it and every time I've heard it presented. And one more uh, excuse for me not having to back out with this guy. I actually have already told him, Hey, I've got to talk to you sometime. I, I told you the straight way and I had the wrong word straight. So we got to talk sometime. I got to fix this. Uh, so he's looking forward to that conversation where the pastor's going to admit that he was wrong. You can imagine he's going to love that. Uh, but John the Baptist, and I won't read these passages, but in Isaiah 40 and John one, he said, make a straight highway, make a straight way for our God. The Messiah is coming. Get ready. You need a straight path. Um, I, I think I know what Patrick's going to say, and we'll wait and find out if I'm right or not. Yeah, uh, it don't matter. That that was, you know, that wasn't either here nor there. It's not that big a deal. But the reason it matters to me is because if we get something like this wrong for so long, which I did, I think we discredit our overall perspective on things and we cast doubt, maybe even in our own minds, concerning what else we may have overlooked or misinterpreted. And it could be something you know much more significant. I just heard the testimony of a fellow who was um, trying to give the gospel to a Muslim guy. And the Islamic fellow said to this Christian guy, I will listen to you if you can answer this one question for me. He said, okay, what is it? And uh, the Islamic fellow said, how many sheep went on the ark? And he said, uh, two. And the Islamic fellow said, stupid Christians. And he went to the passage in Genesis and explained the, the clean animals and the seven pairs plus the sacrifice, and the number 16. <laughs> My point is not, of course, what the number actually is and why that matters so much, but something that little stood in the way of this guy you know, listening to the gospel, at least that seems to be the, the case. So let me ask you, before we came to consider this podcast, had you guys seen the straight gate the way it's supposed to be seen, or had you looked at it the way I had looked at it, or had you ever even thought about it? Well, I, uh, I looked it up when you sent the uh, email to me, and I don't think I ever had an issue because I very rarely use the King James translation and my translation says narrow. So it's pretty obvious in my translation, what, uh, <laughs> what the point is. Um, at least it's not a word that could be, you know, spelled a different way. Um, so yeah, I, you know, the, the King James, I guess uses the word straight 
versus straight. And um, I think a lot of the other ones use the word narrow because that's just a little less confusing for um, us simple-minded folks who uh, don't uh, want to worry about what a straight is versus what keeping straight is. So um, I think uh, I think your argument, though, for saying that the path is straight you know, regardless of whether this passage says it, but other passages, I think it actually, to me, is more from a personal, a human perspective versus God's perspective, right? So God's perspective, of course, his path is straight and his path for us is straight if we were to follow it all the time. Um, But I think the reality is, you know, like if you ask Paul, the apostle Paul, his path didn't always seem so straight all the time, right? He tried to go one place, then the spirit stopped him, and then he tried to go another place, and the spirit stopped, him, and then he finally got to go in the direction he was supposed to be going. Um, so there was all sorts of turns and stops, and uh, and I think that's the reality for most Christians. As we try to follow the spirit, we go in one direction, and then no doors open, and we're like, oh, that's not the right way, and then we try a different way, and you know, so it can be seem to us as to not be such a straight path, uh, even though I guess if we were following the spirit perfectly, you know, it would be a straight path. So. Yeah. But if it's a narrow gate and a narrow path, at least in that passage, has nothing to do with the path being straight. Correct. Right. <laughs> it has to do with, with it being hard to find and few oh. people are on the, few people go through the gate and few people are on the path. That's the whole point of the passage, isn't it? That's the point of that passage, I would agree, yeah. yeah. Chris, how about you? You encountered this before? Well, specifically regarding this passage, my abuse of this passage and the experience of abusing this passage is, is perhaps a little bit different. I'm not, I'm not charging you fellas with abusing it, but I have, um, in my earlier ministry, abused this passage um, and used it as a launching point to defend my preferences. Uh, of course, come from a background that used King James only. So I have used the word straight. And I believe that in the past I have used it um, and applied it in terms of a narrow path. Um, but that narrow path was a path that looked like my preferences, yes. you know, using my translation going to the type of church that I went to, my dress standards, um, et cetera, et cetera. And that is just as bad, probably a worse, I would say, abuse of the passage than than any other person could abuse it. Um, I think, you know, and like I said, I am a, I'm not a King James only, so I, I don't ever take that title because of the connotation that brings with that. Um, you know, people say, you know, if you're King James only, well, you believe in double inspiration. I, I've never held to that. Never believed that uh, the, the King James translation was doubly inspired. Um, that's never been my conviction. Um, I'm, I think the title that I wear more is, is a King James exclusivist. And I think uh, I use that translation exclusively. That's the only one I've ever used. I'm too, you know, it's too ingrained in my memory to change now. And so one of the things that guys like me have to be careful of is uh, the error of assumption. When we use that, that word straight, just like what you did, you know, I would assume because of my familiarity with the language 
that it would be S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T. And then not only that error of assumption, but also the lack of engaging in the text, looking at the original language, you know, not saying we have to retranslate the Bible, but looking at the original language and the context would have eliminated not only my issue, but other issues with this passage. And I think a failure to do those things because we assume we know what the translation is meaning or uh, we narrow the application uh, or we don't intend to apply it like Jesus, you know, intended to apply it to his hearers. Those, those are ways that I've abused it. Uh, but the way is narrow. I mean, it is straight. It is compact. It's just not in the fashion that I thought. Yeah. There's only one gate and that's Jesus. That is the narrow way yeah. to eternal life. That is the straight path. And so that, that's been my experience of misinterpreting and abusing the passage. I got the sense of it right in the narrowness of the way, but then I misapplied it to defend preferences, which is not the intention of the passage at all. Yeah. One of the things that I struggle with in this realization is that, and I don't, I'm not blaming God, I'm blaming myself, but I'm like, how did how did the Holy Spirit let me continue in ministry for 20 years without pointing this out to me? You know, and of course, I know he would say, well, there's plenty of times I led you to work on this and you didn't listen to me. You know, right. I led you to study this passage and you wanted to go play basketball or something. You know, <laughs> so I'm not I'm not blaming him. But just the fact that I can be 20 years in the ministry and something so simple has been eluding me the entire time i've never slowed down in the reading of it enough to catch the different spelling um and i you know i know i've read and that's you know that's true with a lot of passages that are really familiar when i get to them if i'm quoting them or i'm reading them i'll go through them faster because i assume i'm already familiar with it mm-hmm. and i think we do ourselves a disservice with that and and i agree it's not a problem with a translation it's a problem with a change of language you know, we don't exactly. use the word S-T-R-A-I-T in any context in our modern uh, day to mean, you know, a fat man squeeze. <laughs> we, we, right. we would not say, you know, I was walking down a trail and, and I came between these two, two trees and man, it was straight. <laughs> you know, if we said that, we would mean the trees were straight. We wouldn't mean it was a narrow, you know, squeeze between the two trees. So, you know, language has changed. And so I think Patrick's point is, is well founded there. But I want to be right, not yes. so that I can say I'm right, but so that God won't say you're wrong. Okay, I, I I want to represent Him, you know, accurately on big things and small. And so let's pick up another uh, matter that I don't know. It might be of let's say it's probably more important than than my misunderstanding of the word straight but it's still not earth shattering. I'm not going to break fellowship with somebody over this matter, but I remember growing up hearing about churches uh, that did foot washing and they considered it to be an ordinance of the church right up there with communion and baptism. Uh, What is your experience, Chris and Patrick, what are your experiences with this persuasion? Have you encountered it? Uh, I know, Chris, you have. That's why I've asked you on this podcast to deal with this. Uh, what? I'll start with Patrick. Are you familiar? Are you familiar with this at, at all? Have you seen it? 
Well, I haven't seen it, but at my ordination, I had a pastor ask me why we don't do foot washing. Um, oh. Yeah. And um, so I've looked into it since then because I didn't have a good answer for it <laughs> at the time. I remember thinking, I can't believe he's asking me about foot washing. Where in the world does this come from? Um, and then I remember him explaining, you know, some of the churches that are doing it, the Brethren churches, um, uh, are, uh, have that as an ordinance. So it wasn't something that I've ever experienced or, you know, even been to a church that, uh, has done it before, but, um, uh, that's probably the first time I think, um, it was brought up to me as even some issue that I wasn't even aware of at the time. So I'm glad that he brought it up even though it was a bit embarrassing that I couldn't answer his question at the time. So, <laughs> right. Do you know if the brethren church churches use it uh, in conjunction with communion or is it a separate event? Cause I've heard of people doing it at communion. Right. I'm not sure how they actually institute it. Um, you know, how often or, or when they do it, but right. I, I, my understanding is just that it is uh, an ordinance. So they see it, I guess they'd put it at the same level as, you know, um, baptism or communion. Right. I've done it once as an illustration uh, for a sermon, and I've certainly heard it done in connection with ordination, uh, kind of as a symbol to remind the guy that's being ordained, hey, you're a servant, not a master. You're not a Lord. Don't be domineering and dominating. Serve people. Uh, and I, I'm cool with that. I don't think it's required, but I certainly understand it. Um, Chris, step up to the plate, man. What's your experience with it? Okay. Um, in my uh, circle of churches in the community uh, that I was raised in, the fellowship of churches uh, in which I was saved, received, you know, what I would consider my ministry training, uh, a call to preach and my commission to preach, my licensing and my ordination were all uh, what we call foot washing churches. They were foot washing missionary Baptist churches. Now, in in um, in saying that, I don't want to communicate the sense that our churches held this as an ordinance unto itself. Um, we were traditional Baptist churches, and we have two ordinances. Now, we we, we may want to back up and define what we mean by an ordinance. Um, I believe, according to scriptures, you know, that these ordinances are, and I hate to use the word, again, this is maybe a deficiency of language. I hate to use the word rite or ritual, but for lack of, of a better term, you know, the ordinances of the church are rites and rituals that we have. R-I-T-E. R-I-T-E, yes, not R-I-G-H-T. <laughs> But uh, for, for lack of a better term, these, these ordinances are rites and rituals that we have as the church where we take visible, tangible elements to illustrate and to show, you know, things that are inward and invisible graces. So, you know, in, in our church, baptism is the first ordinance upon a profession of faith. The first ordinance that we um, administer to that believer that's never repeated is the ordinance of baptism where we visibly in a watery grave bury them with Christ and raise them to new life. That doesn't save. It doesn't administer any grace. Again, it's just an illustration, but it's one that we're commanded, I believe, from the scripture to follow. 
What if and somebody then, called that a sacrament, by the way? What would you say to that? There, there was probably a day in my life that I would have fought that vehemently. Now, uh, I don't wrestle so much with semantics as I used to as a younger minister. I would, I would use that as an opportunity to probe a little bit deeper because if, if they're using the word sacrament um, and with that carrying with it the idea that we're actually infusing grace in the baptism or, you know, regenerating that individual through their baptism, then I would, I would certainly press a little hard on that and try to correct their understanding on it. If they're just using it, you know, I know a lot of Baptist churches in their articles of faith now, they don't use the word ordinance. They use the word sacraments, uh, <clears throat> but they don't mean, you know, infusing grace. So I'm not going to argue over English definitions very much. Um, and then the other ordinance, and I, I certainly don't mean to dominate the conversation, but the other ordinance is the, is the Lord's Supper and uh, the sacred use of the fruit of the vine and the bread to illustrate the broken body of Christ that was broken for our sins and the fruit of the vine, which in our churches was mostly real fermented wine. I also come from that background. Um, and one of the big divides in our church, uh, in our area, of the last few years is the use of real wine versus grape juice. A lot of churches have broken fellowship over that. Maybe that's another podcast, but that fruit of the vine, you know, signifying the blood of the Lord Jesus that was shed for the new Testament. And then when we did that, we would piggyback off of that service and wash the saints feet. That was in accordance with John chapter number 13, uh, which told us that on the night of his betrayal, after he had um, partaken of the supper with his disciples, our Lord girded himself with a towel and from Peter all the way to Judas washed their feet. Um, and of course, you know, if we read that passage and this gets back to the earlier uh, discussion that we have, if we read that passage, then it's clear. Our Lord says he has done this as an example. And then he follows on and he says, if I being your Lord have done this to you, then you ought to do it to one another. I've given this for an example. And what our churches really latch on to uh, for the reason that they routine, routinely and ritually practice the foot washing is Jesus says, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. And so um, I don't remember any emphasis, any emphasis in our churches where, where the pastor or the teachers of the church ever told us that this was a separate ordinance unto itself. But this was a part of the Lord's Supper ordinance. It was not one that we communicated any type of salvific grace, but it was one where we illustrated the love that the brethren have for each other. I don't remember them being legalistic on it in terms of if you've never properly been baptized, you know, we, we, we have issues with people who have improper baptisms. You know, we will make them uh, submit to believers baptism if they were sprinkled as a child and then later came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We would say you don't have a proper baptism. You have an alien baptism. And also it's a point of discipline if they're not routinely partaking in the Lord's Supper. Because we are, to, we are to routinely partake in that supper to remind us of what Christ has done for us, looking backwards at the cross, but also looking forward 
into the day in which, you know, he will partake of that supper with us in the kingdom. And so that is a strict point of order and a point of discipline in our churches. But I've never seen our churches exercise discipline on anybody that did not participate in the washing of the saints' feet. I believe we had a balanced view of it, that this was an example where we, where our Lord taught us to serve one another. And we visibly wanted to show our love, affection, and humility, preferring our brethren before one another. If churches have other ways of visibly demonstrating that, then I'm not a legalist on that point about you have to wash feet. But I do think our Lord intends, just as much as we demonstrate um, our burial with him in baptism, our continuing communion with him in the Lord's Supper, I think our Lord does intend for the church to visibly display its affection for one another in humiliation and in serving one another. And that's what we do in the washing of the feet. Do you do that at Mount Olive? Is that, that's the name of your church, right? Mount Olive? Right. No, sir. Now that is not a church that has routinely practiced that. I think, um, you know, in the one year that I have been there, um, in the one year that I have been there, I have asked a couple of the guys that have been around for a long time. And, and from what I can tell, there have been spontaneous um, uh, foot washing services where somebody was just so moved with love towards uh, an elder member, you know, or a pastor to where they came and washed their feet, much like what y'all said in the ordination service. But it's never been a routine service that has been administered in the church from what I can see. Now, when you do it in a routine setting, um, how do you go about doing that? Is there one person worse, one person washing everyone's feet or does each watch each wash each other's feet? How does that typically look practically speaking? I've Not seen that it, it matters. I'm just curious. Yeah, no, I've seen it in uh, various fashions, but, but traditionally in our churches, uh, the women wash the women's feet. There's no mixing of the sexes in the washing of the feet. I've seen husband wash uh, wives feet and wives wash husbands' feet, but to keep things proper and everything, they, they, there's never been the washing of other men's wives and other wives washing other husbands' feet. That's never happened. The men usually go to one side of the church. The ladies go to the other side of the church. And then I've typically seen it where there are several wash pans that are set out, and men are uh, washing other brothers' feet, and they just kind of move down the line and trade places. I have been in some uh, foot washing services where there was one foot washing pan and one brother took his place and all the brethren washed his feet simultaneously. Uh, there's typically a time of girding yourself with a towel. Uh, some of the older and this comes, I've never traced it any further than this. Most of our missionary Baptist churches in my area um, in the early 20th century broke off from the primitive Baptist churches. Right. And they broke off because of hyper-Calvinism. Um, and they broke off because of a lack of, of missionary evangelical efforts, right. not only abroad, but even local efforts. A lot of the primitive Baptist churches would not have evangelistic services in the community at all. Uh, they were such hyper-Calvinists and such what we call hard-shell predestinarians that they believed that God would go into the community and awaken a sinner and bring him to the fellowship of the believers. And that over time, he would profess faith. He would show evidence of that. They would baptize him and welcome him into the fellowship. They did no community outreach whatsoever. And a lot of the men in our area were moved 
and convicted about the lack of evan evangelistic work and mission effort. They broke off from those primitive Baptist churches and they brought that practice with them. Many of the uh, primitive Baptist churches in our area still practice the washing of the saints feet. Um, but there's a time where, you know, the men will gird themselves with a towel. They'll wrap a towel around themselves and tie it in a knot. I've done it so many times. And it's funny, I, I was uh, converted as a child. And I remember uh, in my unsaved years, longing uh, to partake in the communion service and the washing of the saints' feet. But I was forbidden because I wasn't a believer. Yeah. And then when, when I did profess faith as a child, uh, I remember the first person that washed my feet was my dad. And it was a great lesson in humility. Here is my father, this larger than life figure, getting down on his hands and knees with a towel wrapped around him and washing my feet. But not only that with tears and not only that, but him washing other men in the church and their feet. So they'll gird themselves with a the towel. They'll, they'll pour water over the man's foot, wipe it with their own hands, pull the feet up out of the bowl and, and wipe it off with the towel. That's, that's traditionally how it's, how it's carried out. It's a very solemn time. A lot of tears, a lot of handshakes and hugs. And uh, as, as you can imagine, you've, you've really got to love a guy to get down there <laughs> and wash his old nasty feet. But uh, it's just a dying practice in our area. There's not many people that do it anymore. And like I said, I'm not legalistic about it. I've not come to Mount Olive to institute that. Um, I wouldn't force that upon the congregation because in my year there, especially during the pandemic, I have seen regular visible manifestations of their love and devotion to one another, which I think is the intention of the foot washing service to begin with. But at the same time, I'm not going to criticize those churches that still practice that uh, because the ones that I know of do it from a, from a sense of they really want to obey the scriptures. They believe there's a pattern that's been given here. So they're going to follow the pattern. Well, what I was going to ask you, you already answered. I was going to ask, do you, did you, do you see, uh, evidence, spiritual fruit, like we do at a baptismal service and at a communion service, at least for me, there's no doubt when somebody gets baptized, I see the rejoicing of the saints oh, visibly, yes. even saints who kind of been casually, you know, communing with the church still at baptism, they recognize the significance of it. There's great joy. And at, commu at communion, there's great uh, soberness and, uh, mm -hmm. and also joy connected with that. And it, there's a, a palpable spirit in the room at those two times. And I was going to ask, do you have that same sense uh, at foot washing services? And you clearly have answered that you do. Absolutely. I remember um, the first church I pastored was a foot washing church. And the, the, I pastored four churches and only one of the four was, a, a, was what we call a, a foot washing service. The rest are what we call dry foot Baptist. <laughs> right. But, but uh, at the first church that I pastored, here was, a, here was a pastor that had founded the church, had pastored it for 30 years, you know, and it's still, he, he's, he's, he's already with the Lord now, has been for several years. But I can remember looking down and seeing the tears rolling off of his face into the pan while he's washing my feet, you know. Here was a man that I considered, you know, my superior by many degrees in the ministry, yet he humbled himself you know, in, a, in an act of obedience to his Lord first to wash a young pastor's feet. At the same time, 
the church that I'm pastoring now, like I said, they don't wash feet. But back last year, a tornado come through the community. And almost all of the men of the church, we had one farm that was especially hit hard with uh, some structures damaged and uh, some trees down. And the men of the church as a group got together with their chainsaws and served this brother by helping clean up his mess. To me, that is a fulfillment of what Jesus wanted his people to do in John 13, just as much as a foot washing service. Mm. Patrick, why don't you speak to the, uh, the nature of ordinance, if you can. I, I'm not asking you to be the master here, but what are some of the common things we find in the scripture concerning baptism and the Lord's Supper that make us sh so sure that Christ has ordered us to do this, that these are ordinances, that they are ordained of Christ, commanded for us to um, to carry them out. I mean, he made all kinds of commandments throughout the New Testament, but why are those two so prominent? What makes them stand out? Can you find any similarities right off the top of your head there? Well, one I would say is um, it, they're, they're repeated in the epistles and they're shown to be carried out by the New Testament church um, as, you know, something that they repeated over and over again, right? So you can see it throughout the book of Acts. Uh, you can see that the churches were, you know, baptizing people upon um, uh, becoming believers and putting their, their faith in Christ. You can see that you know, Paul spent uh, a long time talking to his churches about um, how to uh, perform the Lord's Supper. Um, and so I think that to me is probably the biggest evidence of why those two um, are ordinances and why I would view foot washing not as one of those. That, that's at least one reason, because, you know, I don't see that in the early church. Um, I don't see that as something that was uh, performed um, throughout the early church in the book of Acts, you don't see that uh, brought up as something that's being described as though they were having a, a ceremony type, ritual type thing um, and, and doing it. I think also just to speak to, to foot washing in general, as Jesus gave us that example, uh, I would look to what was the culture at that time. Um, and the mm. culture was that uh, you know, that was the most menial task, you know, people wore sandals and flip-flops or I guess sandals, not flip-flops, maybe I don't know if flip-flops were invented yet, but sandals <laughs> for sure. So obviously their feet were very dusty. They were dirty. And it was the most menial of tasks for someone to wash somebody else's feet. And surely, um, you know, friends or acquaintances of each other, they didn't wash each other's feet. You know, that was not something that they were doing. Um, and so for Jesus to go and do that when he was the teacher, right, was showing he was stepping down below them and doing a task of a menial servant. Um, and I think the example there uh, is the humbleness and the servant nature that he had, not the act itself, right, mm -hmm. um, which differentiates it to me from communion, which is uh, uh, showing literally, you know, um, the body and blood of Christ and giving a very clear example of, um, of, of a picture of something. Same with baptism, right? The, the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. We're seeing that in a picture uh, where foot washing to me is, is an example of humbleness, which can be done in many different ways, many different forms. Um, 
to me that would be relevant to the culture. I think if Jesus were here today, he, at least in America, he probably wouldn't pick foot washing because we wear shoes and we're not, we don't have dirty feet. And it's just not something that's done in our culture. I think Jesus personally would choose something else to, to show how he's having a, a servant's heart and a servant's attitude towards um, those who, you know, him being God, uh, clearly he didn't need to step down and do that. You know, he, he deserves to have his feet washed, but he's giving us an example um, of how we should treat others uh, in our normal everyday behavior. Um, but specifically answer your question to me, I think it, it's the biggest biblical example of why we have those two ordinances is because we can clearly see them described throughout the book of Acts, throughout the New Testament churches, um, that this was something they were doing. This was something they understood um, from Christ's teaching and from the apostles teaching that this these are the two things that we need to be doing um, specifically in our churches. Um, there are certainly many other things that we can be doing um, and different churches did things differently, but these two were in common and they were the same between all of the churches. It wasn't, you know, drastically different in any way. Um, I think in the way that they perform these. Yeah. That's interesting. And, and you really answered my next question. I was going to ask about orthodoxy and, what place that plays in the discussion. You know, if we, if we, if we're doing something that few or no other churches are doing, then we ought to at least re-examine, are we really supposed to be doing this? And you kind of answered it from New Testament churches. If, if it wasn't repeated in the epistles by the apostles, by commandment or by example, then it doesn't, at least doesn't seem to measure up to the other two. But I like the way you described that. It's the it's the lowest task, you know, in his culture. So if he had come in 1950, he would have probably polished the apostle's shoes. He would have been a shoe shiner. Uh, so the question would be, what would which that task? I mean, even I've seen that happen. I went to a pastor's conference and they had a fellow shining shoes, and all the pastors could get up on this seat, and this guy would shine their shoes, and I refused to do it. I was like. I'm not putting anybody through that. That's humiliating, you know, to this guy, which, I mean, the guy wanted to do it, but I just couldn't make myself get up there and let, I was like, Peter, I was like, you ain't sign them shining my shoes. You know, I don't know. Uh, but my question then would be, what is the menial task that everyone needs? Cause that's something about foot washing in the day of Jesus. Everyone needed it. Um, what's something that's in our culture that everyone needs, but none of us would want to do for somebody else. I mean, is there an equivalent? Is there an equivalent? Maybe cleaning their toilet. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. I mean, if you if if you want to get just down and dirty uh, on it, but again, that would be that would be an act of humiliation and service to your brother. Another point to piggyback on on what Patrick was saying about ordinances. These also these are also things that guard the church's belief of regenerated membership yes. only. Yes. You know, baptism is for believers only. The Lord's Supper is for believers only. You can't say that about foot washing. You can't say about that particular act or an act of humiliation and service, because these are things that unbelievers will do and do for each other on a regular basis. So that doesn't in any way guard the church's membership. It's just a, it's a Jesus saying, if anybody should be like this, it yes. should be my people. It should be my people that love and serve one another. But I mean, you know, from serving meals, 
cleaning homes when people are sick, random acts of kindness that the church. The fact of the matter is, if anybody's going to do these things, especially in our culture where the communities are breaking down, you know, the old fashioned rural communities are breaking down. Urban sprawl is taking place. People don't know who their neighbors are anymore. Random acts of kindness are about limited to just paying for the guy's meal behind you at Chick-fil-A anymore. I mean, that's about the most random act of kindness that a lot of people do for you. So especially in this day, whether it's washing feet or not, the church needs to do visible acts of humiliation, service, and kindness first to one another. Before we worry about the world, we take care of one another and then move out into the world. Love one another. This is the grand defining mark of Christianity. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. And that love must be manifested in a charitable way, uh, according to 1 Corinthians 13. Yeah, good stuff. Well, I don't know that we can uh, thoroughly cover any other issues, but I want to at least bring up some that I think the listeners uh, should consider and maybe evaluate and maybe we can dedicate a, a podcast to this in the future. Um, there are there are other things. We've talked about the straight gate, and we talked about foot washing, which clearly there was a strong perspective that I had. And now I'm like, wait a second, let me reevaluate. That's not exactly what was said. Let's go in a better direction here with this thing. And foot washing, clearly there are some people who, who are fairly dogmatic about this must be done. And now I've actually known people who were just as dogmatic that it should not be done, mm-hmm. which I'm not sure why you would be so dogmatic, why it shouldn't be done, unless you just didn't want to wash anybody's feet. You know, <laughs> I guess that would be uh, a good reason to be dogmatic. But things that I've done that I've seen done as well, um, misinterpreting scriptures, misapplying scriptures, many places I've seen take the promises, people take the promises that God made to Israel as a nation with the land covenant and such and apply them liberally and lightly to the church or to their own experience. Right. Um, and I'm sure we could give many examples of that. My, if my people, which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from the way, that's the most familiar one. And I know some preachers get really upset when people flippantly use that saying, let's repent and God will give revival, which I think there's a way that can be presented that's still absolutely legitimate, where where you're talking about the character and nature of God and the character and nature of sinners and how God relates to sinners. So I think if you do the work to explain what you're saying, it can still be used. But um, applying commentaries, man, there's some commentators that like Matthew Henry, I'm like, I love you, Matthew, Matthew Henry, but sometimes your, your willingness to just go back and forth with the church in Israel, I, I just can't stomach it. Um, and verses aimed at believers used on non-believers. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You know, I've heard that in invitations over and over again. That's a, that's a message from Jesus to the church. It's not even message to sinners, you know, right. Uh, Applying kingdom promises to earthly existence. I saw this yesterday. No, what's today? Friday. I saw this Wednesday night. Um, I was uh, out witnessing with Danny, the guy that I mentioned earlier. And uh, 
we were trying to give the gospel to some people. And one of the ladies in the group that we, we was talking to, we were talking about six to, to about six different people together. She kind of took over the conversation and started preaching. It's this other guy who was in kind of a state of hostility towards God. And, but her gospel was, if you'll trust Jesus and you'll do what's right and stop living the way you're living, then God will give you a job and God will bless you. And you wouldn't have killed your son, you know, and, and that kind of thing. And she was taking promises that have to do with eternal life and, and beyond this life. And she was applying them all in the here and now mm-hmm. uh, and some kind of health and wealth, you know, prosperity gospel of some sort. Um, so those are just some examples where I know I've gone astray at times in those three ways. And I've certainly seen others go astray in major ways. Are there any that stand out to either one of you guys that we can just kind of catalog that people ought to, you know, evaluate as they're thinking about different passages of scriptures? Is there big potholes that you've seen people fall into? Well, I've seen, um, uh, you kind of gave the example, but I don't know how many times I've watched I've read on Facebook scriptures in the Old Testament talking about Israel and they're applying it to America, you know, as though America somehow is Israel. I, I don't really understand that or why why they would be doing that, but just totally misinterpreting the fact that promises made to Israel somehow they apply to America today. Um, that one's really, really common, I see. Yeah. I actually met an old farmer that believed that America is the lost tribes of the house of Israel. <laughs> so, I was like, what? I don't even know where to start with you, dude. <laughs> Any others, Chris? I, everything you've covered, you know, obviously uh, those are some of the, some, those are some of the bigger ones. Again, I get back to this. What I run into a lot um, in my context is this error of assumption. Yes. Just assuming the Bible says something that it never really said, or when it said something closely to what you're saying, again, you violated context and and misapplied something. The, the one that just comes to mind right now, uh, because I've heard it recently, is, uh, you know, a discussion about the church helping some folks that needed some help. And the church could help them. This was not my church, by the way. This was another church, another pastor talking. But I have faced it in churches that I have pastored, just not at the one I'm at right now, thank the Lord. But uh, I heard um, of a church considering to help a family. And it was said in the, in the meeting of the men that were discussing the issue, well, I don't think we should help these people because doesn't the Bible say God only helps those who can help themselves? And, and of course, most people will say, you know what, that's right. It does say that, you know. It, well, where does it say that at? Well, I don't know. It's somewhere in there. You're the pastor. You find it. You know, I just know it says it. Good luck. Well, it doesn't. It does not say that at all. Yeah. In fact, God's routinely in the business of helping people who absolutely cannot help themselves. Yeah. And we are commanded to help people yeah. um, who cannot help themselves and who can help themselves, but won't help themselves. We're just told to help people, right? If yeah. we can. Um, and so it's that, it's that error of assumption. Um, yeah. I, I remember um, one that I ran into when I, and I think I repeated it often. 
uh, in my earlier years of ministry. But saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Ghost the night that I was converted. You know, I would say that night God saved me, sanctified me, and filled me with the Holy Ghost. The Bible says that people that are saved are saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Ghost as if those are final and complete works. Yes, the night that I was saved, I was eternally saved. But I began the sanctification process. I am right. being sanctified. I'm not fully sanctified yet, as you can tell. <laughs> and in terms of filling, uh, being filled with the Holy Ghost, yes, I am sealed by the Spirit of God. But being filled with the Spirit of God is not a once and for all action. It's a continual action, mm -hmm. according to Ephesians 5, 18. So th those were, man, I, I bet I preached that in youth revivals for the first three years of my ministry, you know. Save, sanctify, and fill the Holy Ghost, and that's what the Bible says. Well, that, that needs a little further explanation. It's not as cut and dry as what you just made it out, Chris. But yeah. thank the Lord. He is long-suffering and patient with us. Yes. <laughs> he uses the foolishness of preaching to oh, save those who believe. <laughs> but that doesn't you know, mean we should embrace fool foolishness in preaching on purpose. That's for sure. When we uh, when you sent the idea for this uh, podcast, I... I tried to catalog just some just some of my big foul balls that I've hit through the years in terms of preaching, and they are just too many. They are too many. Uh, I thought about another one, and thank God for a and, and I don't mean to go long on your podcast, but again, this this error of assumption. Um, I said something one night in a revival service of you know if you're convicted by the Holy Spirit, uh, we want you to come forward and pray. And I said something along the lines of, if it's God's will to save you tonight, he will. And then, of course, I went off, you know, if God's not dealing with you and it's not his will to save you, then you won't get saved tonight no matter what you pray or how sincere you are. Well, I had a good pastor pull me aside and say, now, look, brother, I, I know what you were trying to say. But the Bible's clear. God is not willing that any should perish. Any sinner who is interested in grace and comes forward to receive Jesus Christ. That's evidence that the spirit is dealing Amen. with them. So right. let's leave it at that. You know, you yeah. don't have to, you don't have to, but what I was trying to do is I was trying to allow some allowance for false convert. I don't want right. God to be charged with false right. convert. He's not worried about that. He knows who he is, you know, and so I shouldn't concern myself with things that God doesn't concern himself with. Yeah. And, and, and Jesus didn't chase Judas away. No. No, he was a false convert. Yeah. Yeah. So, in fact, Jesus said, Hey, let the wheat and tares grow together. That's what he said. Time will take people. care of it. That's you right. don't have to press the issue. Time will take care of it. Yeah. I thought when you said, um, God helps those who help themselves, I thought you were going to quote the passage that says, uh, if a man will not work, neither should he eat mm -hmm. because that would be a misapplication. That's talking about in the church. Sure. You're talking about people help, helping people outside the church. You don't have the jurisdiction to say, well, if you don't have a job, I'm not helping you. That's you right. just help people outside That's the church. That's a good point. That's a really good so, point. Anything else, Patrick? I thought of one more that okay. I hear a lot. People say, um, well, God will never give you anything you can't handle. Yes. Right. You hear that all the time. And that's just totally not true. God gives me stuff I can't handle all the time in my own power. He gives you stuff far beyond your own ability so that you'll rely upon him. 
And certainly with his power, he can handle everything. But just another, you know, misstatement of what the Bible says. Yeah, it's a it's an impartial uh, use of the passage. And I can't quote it exactly. What's the passage say that that refers to? First Corinthians 10, I believe, isn't it? Um, God is faithful and will with the temptation also provide a way of escape. He will not allow you to be attempted above what you are able. So if you stop there, if you stop there, that's the doctrine you end up with. Right. Am I right? right? But if you, but if you continue, he will also make a way to escape. So clearly if he didn't make a way to escape, you wouldn't be able to handle it. So if you don't rely on him, you can't handle it. So yeah, I totally agree. Well, and that's also related to temptation too, specifically, which doesn't necessarily apply to everything, right? So right. I don't know if you can necessarily say, I mean, obviously you can be put in situations that are bad and because they're bad, that can cause you to be tempted. But I think that passage specifically is speaking about temptation itself, not necessarily a horrible circumstance you find right. yourself in. First Corinthians 10, 13, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. And people somehow condense that down to God will not put any more on you than you're able to bear. Well, in fact, he has said that he'll put things on you that that he will provide a way for you to bear it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, both both that pat that um, idea and the God helps those who help themselves. It's really this they're, they're tied together there because God helps those who can't help themselves. I mean, that's kind of the point of grace. Uh, as long as you're trying to help yourself, He's like, well, as long as you're going to build your own righteousness, I, I mm-hmm. you can't you don't need mine, and I can't help you. You know, He came to call not the righteous but sinners to repentance. Uh, so our dependence upon God is the whole point you know, in both settings, it seems. I just saw one this morning. I commented to my wife about it because I'm preaching on Samson this coming Sunday. And so I was reading in Judges 16, I think it is. And I just started chuckling. And I was like, you know, we we hear this a lot. Don't judge me or, you know, God said, don't judge and those kind of things. And I was like, we got a whole book in the Bible called Judges full of the stories of 12 people who were called to do nothing but judge. <laughs> I was like, man, sometimes we just don't pay attention to what God's doing. And just a little portion of truth, you know, and then a whole bunch of lie in a lot of cases. And we can really make a mess with things and build our own theology. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Patrick and Chris, for spending some time with me today. May God bless you both and your families and your ministries. As always, to all of you out there listening on the various podcast platforms, be sure to let others know about this podcast and listen to other episodes as well. Like, share, subscribe, comment, review, etc. cetera. Uh, that organic way of spreading uh, a podcast is, is a lot more useful and powerful than if we were to spend money advertising or try to get it out there. Uh, people are too sophisticated these days to fall for well, many people are too sophisticated <laughs> to fall for paid advertisement. Uh, as soon as I see the word sponsored on my social media feeds, I scroll. You know, I'm not interested. It's sponsored. I'm scrolling. You know, that's not something I want. So, but if you're sharing it yourself, then uh, then there's somebody within your sphere of influence 
that you can bless. So if it's a blessing to you, be a blessing to others. God bless you all. And I hope you'll listen again next time.